Good morning, live from Sinai Temple. It's Rabbi Erez Sherman and Rabbi on the sidelines. This morning, we are joined by ESPN Laker analyst and NBA journalist, Dave McMenamin. Good morning, Dave. Good to see you. Good morning, Erez. Good, great to see you, too. Yes, long time no see. Dave and I go way back, wow, almost two decades to uh, the court at the Carrier Dome. As uh, Dave was a manager on the Syracuse basketball team, I'm uh, from Syracuse, so I was had a summer job during rabbinical school that got me through school refereeing uh, middle school games with Dave McMenamin. Let's go back to those days uh, when you were a manager on actually during the time of Carmelo Anthony, our championship year in 2003. What did you learn from Coach Beheim and seeing him interact with a guy like Carmelo Anthony? Uh, what did you learn and what was your journey back then to the sports and basketball world? I learned a lot of things from Coach Beheim over the years. One, the amount of preparation he puts into the job. I mean, it's all consuming. And so when you're in college and you have dreams of wanting to work in sports, you don't really recognize what that means. You hear that working is nine to five, 40 hour weeks. Um, then you're around it and you see, oh, no, there you don't turn it off. Whatever needs to be done, you're going to do. And so with Coach Beheim, whether that is, um, you know, film study and, you know, he's not a big film study guy per se, but he watches a ton of games, um, yes. as many games as any basketball person I've been around. Uh, and not just Big East or ACC back in the day. It was, <laughs> there's a Mountain West game that starts at 10 Eastern. And I'm going to watch that because I want to see what's going on in that conference and then beyond that uh you know just the intensity that he brings to the job particularly on game days you know, he uh hired a staff that he delegated a lot of the responsibilities to in practices uh but when it's you know game day is money time and, and that's where he really took over and to see that shift always impressed me because it, you you could see him put everything he had into the job in those moments yeah, there was nothing like watching him walk out of that tunnel and knowing, like, it was time. You didn't mess around yeah. with uh, Coach Beheim. In fact, there was an article in Syracuse.com about him and Bu – uh, not Buddy, but Jimmy. The Cornell season uh, canceled, basically, and he's really had a lot of time to literally just watch game and game with uh, with his dad as well. So what was your journalistic aspirations when you were uh, a Syracuse grad? Were you looking to do what you were doing today? Somewhat, some version of it. When I uh, applied to Syracuse, I thought I would join the ranks of the Bob Costas's, the Marv Alberts uh, of the world. You know, so many um, bright careers for, for broadcasters uh, coming out of Syracuse. Uh, I grew up outside Philadelphia. We had a, a local access cable uh, channel. So I had like a Wayne's World style sports talk show. When I was in high school, I thought that would be the direction I wanted to go. Once I got to school and was, you know, around uh, many other bright students that I, I realized that I felt like I did my best storytelling through writing. Um, and, you know, and obviously I wanted to pair that with sports. And uh, as my career progressed and I was fortunate enough to get several jobs covering the NBA, uh, I, I kind of went back to on-camera stuff. So now, now my job's, you know, 50-50 on camera and writing, um, which I think suits me well. So let's go to Gilbert Arenas and your connection with him back in the day. And you were doing all the, sort of like what you said with Coach Beheim, right? You were doing all the work, but not getting any of the credit. <laughs> what did that look like with Gilbert Arenas? And when did you realize, like, I have a voice. I can find my voice. 
Yeah, I was fortunate and just in timing, actually, and so much of life is timing is I was out of school and um, I got a job working for the NBA's website or working for, I guess, the the editorial team on the NBA's website. And um, and that was actually a Syracuse connection, how that came about. Um, Former Deputy Commissioner Russ Granick of the NBA, his daughter went to Syracuse. She was friends with one of my best friend's sister's last day literally the last day uh, when i left campus um, my senior year after graduation i had a cover letter and a resume wow. and i handed it to a friend and i was like listen i you your dad must get this stuff all the time but you know <laughs> i i feel like i would be missing opportunity if i didn't do it um fast forward almost seven months later i had moved to san diego to be a high school basketball coach I didn't have any real prospects uh, using my journalism degree at that point. And I got an email from um, someone at HR at the NBA that Russ Granick had finally opened up my cover letter and resume. And um, you know they, they had a job for me. And so when I was on that job with NBA.com, one of my you know first years there, one of our senior writers happened to be on, on a trip to Europe covering NBA preseason basketball. And he uh, he would have normally gotten the assignment to do this new blog with a bright mm-hmm. young star in Gilbert Arenas. The assignment went to me. I took a train from Secaucus, New Jersey, down to Washington, D.C. Was supposed to get 10 minutes with Gilbert for our first entry. We just kind of hit it off. We talked for about a half hour. And from there, uh, at a time when athletes blogs were, were not really a thing, I mean, social media, you know, Facebook was around, but you didn't have Instagram, you didn't have Twitter, right. you didn't have Snapchat, all these platforms that athletes use today didn't exist. And so um, it, it was a combination of, of uh, you know, Gilbert certainly always had something to say, and then me kind of understanding the platform. Um, and, and at the time, like it was, it was kind of a big thing. You know, we won best celebrity blog on the internet in 2007, beating out Will Wheaton, who had all the Star Trek fans rooting for him or voting for him. Um, And it it was was really fortunate for me to have, um, you know, the experience of seeing what an athlete's life is like behind the scenes, more so than I think many um, journalists get to see. And, you know, I I think you asked me how to help me find my voice. It was understanding that when I talk or write or, or, um, you know, put my thoughts out there on the NBA, I want to hope to give the 360 view as much as possible. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, some people, some people like put what they know out there as fact, thinking that they know it at all. And most of the time we don't know it all. Um, and, and so seeing, right. you know, some of the things going on, in Miller's personal life and, and how that would manifest itself in his play on the court. Uh, it's something I always try to keep in mind when, you know, I, I've covered NBA athletes ever since. So you said something before that, you know, you handed that resume to your friend who knew somebody who knew somebody, um, you know, do you get that now? Number one, right? How many resumes yeah. do you get? I want to be the next day McMenamin, but also using the opportunity to build relationships. How, Tell us what you think for that young journalist out there that wants to be the next Dave McMenamin and get those 240,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, yeah. I, well, first of all, I would say there's plenty of other journalists. I hope they model themselves. Uh, uh, well, on you're too modest, my friend. Yeah, well, uh, I, one, yes, I do get those 
those emails and, and direct messages and, and Facebook messages. And, you know, over the years, I, I'd say like maybe a one or two comes in a month. And over the mm-hmm. years I've had, you know, I, I'd say a handful of students that I ended up mentoring to some degree and I've enjoyed seeing their success in the field. Um, yes. It, it comes down to persistence. It also comes down to like how you present yourself. Um, exactly. You know, we we used to learn back in school that you know if you have a a typo in your cover letter or resume, like people will dismiss it immediately. And I was like, really? And then then you see it in real life, and you know someone maybe misspells my last name in a note they send me. That's or... a tough one, Dave. You know, nickname, <laughs> yeah. man, that's really hard. There's it's nine letters, a lot of ends, ends, a lot of ends. Yeah. But, but you, you, you kind of get turned off by it because you're like, oh, yeah. this person is reaching out uh, for my guidance and they didn't take the time to have the attention to detail. And then, you know, it, it's not, maybe it's not a fair judgment, but it, it's a tough business. And um, you kind of, you think, you know, people that w- are willing to go above and beyond and have, the attention to detail will have a better chance to succeed. And, yeah. and then those are the people you gravitate towards helping. And so I, I think for the young journalists out there, uh, kind of the social media era, it does make people more accessible. And I, I think you, I encourage people to to take advantage of those potentials to make relationships, but also be very intentional when you decide to do it um, because you, you want to, I, I I look at it like I build sources, right? Um, on my job, it's kind of the same way. I always want to add value to a conversation, and mm-hmm. so whether that be if you're going to cold call a journalist, be quick, concise, and interesting. And I kind of the same way. If I'm going to, you know, kind of shoot the breeze with a player uh, back in the day when we were allowed to go in the locker room, uh, lead back in the day. days in return, <laughs> yeah. But I want to make sure that I'm not wasting their time. So I will, you know, try to get to know what that person is about and maybe say, there's a documentary you should check out. Uh, Maybe something completely outside of basketball um, just to try to keep the conversation interesting. And obviously with the initial uh, note you send, I'm not asking for journalists to give me documentary or young journalists to give me documentary advice. But you know, I, I think it, it, it's good to just think about like, okay, I am kind of like the elevator pitch. Idea. Like I am trying yeah. to grab this person's attention um, in the midst of a busy day. Uh, how will I uh, do it in, in, in a quick manner where I, I can come off looking like I know what I'm talking about? So you went to Gil- from Gilbert Arenas to becoming the expert in LeBron James, following his career in Cleveland and now here in Los Angeles. How did you, I don't want to say work your way up, but how did you become the expert in LeBron James? I think it was, well, first of all, it was like getting back to the, you know, right time, right place type of thing where, you know, just like Gilbert Arenas, that happened because we had a, a journalist who was, you know, covering another assignment who normally would have gotten it. Uh, this was just like a confluence of events. I, I had been covering the Los Angeles Lakers for six years for two championships between Kobe and, and Powell Gasol, uh, but the Lakers were on a downturn. Uh, you know, Kobe was coming off the torn Achilles, and then he lost the next season because of a, a busted kneecap. And all of a sudden, LeBron James leaves the Miami Heat in the midst of his prime, and ESPN needs someone who can jump on that assignment. Um, you know, at, at the time, 
you know, not married, no children, don't own a house in Los Angeles. Uh, so nothing necessarily tied. Yeah, that's why they didn't call me. I had two kids at the time. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you were, it, it was a, it was a awesome. tough decision. Uh, yeah. But, you know, uh, you would have done a great job with it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you and you were, you know, you lived in Syracuse, so you could have dealt with the snow in Cleveland. Just that's like true, I that's true. Um, but the, you know, the, the opportunity came to me. Um, uh, what my former editor at the time asked me, would you be interested on a Friday? And basically it's like, I want your answer right now. Uh, think about it over the weekend. Let me know on a Monday. And I reached out to one of my, my mentors, a guy, Maurice Brooks, I used to work with at NBA.com. And, and he had a line that still sticks me to this day. He said, you know, you don't want to be the person who ESPN asks to cover LeBron James and the biggest story in, in the NBA and say mm-hmm. no, because mm-hmm. then what are you, what are you really, what are you really doing? Isn't what you're in, in this job for to cover the best basketball stories there are. And, um, and as soon as we had that conversation, I was like, yeah, I, I got to do this. And so, so, so getting the opportunity was the first part of being able to now I've been covering him day in, day out for seven years now, which is, is wild to wow. think about, but uh, and then it was, again, as I mentioned with these notes that students would send, I tried to be very intentional in um, how I approached the job with him. And I recognized that I couldn't do the, the job the way ESPN would want it and the way I would want to do it unless there was some sort of trust and rapport between LeBron yes. and myself. And so, I, you know, work ethic, I think, was a big part of it. I. I, I didn't have a backup uh, reporter in, in Cleveland, um, nice. like like many news outlets will. So there was not yeah, yeah. one sh- shoot around practice game that I missed. Um, wow. And and LeBron, someone who certainly prides himself on his work ethic, I think just by showing up, he recognized that I was there for to do a job, right? And mm-hmm. at some point you know, because LeBron is pretty savvy when it comes to recognizing all the pieces and how they fit in the NBA world. At some point he realized like, wait a second. So this guy was covering the Lakers. Like I didn't know him really before 2014, other than, you know, I covered some all-star games. We'd seen each other in scrums. There was probably some vague recognition of who I was. Um, But when, when he realized that, oh, like he left Los Angeles, um actually we had a conversation in memphis one day this was after the the trade deadline um in 2014 2015 so lebron's first year back in cleveland uh they started off 19 and 20 they were struggling they were scuffling along david griffin the general manager made major trades uh right before the trade deadline and they got J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert from new york they got timothy moscow from denver and then they were on the track and they made the finals that year well we were shoot around in memphis and lebron you know kind of gestured over to me and he's like so this was after the all-star break and i think you know he had i had mentioned him i was in la for the all-star break he's like so you you're back here uh what's going on like you live in la i'm like no, no i moved to cleveland wow and so it took him about a half a season to realize that and he's like oh and he he was sitting next to jr smith and he pointed to jr and he said oh so new york he came from New York to Cleveland. He pointed to right. himself. He said Miami, Miami to Cleveland. And he pointed to me, L.A., L.A. to Cleveland. I, I guess we're all in this together. Uh, wow. Being like wow. we're all there, they're all for, there. We're all there for a job. 
to do. We all left other circumstances and you know I, mm-hmm. I, I grew to really love Cleveland, but Cleveland is not Los Angeles. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and and from there, yeah, I, I kinda had a baseline of trust and then like any relationship, you know, we, we've had our ebbs and flows since, but um, yeah. there, there's been a, a baseline of respect ever since. So let's go back to Kobe for a minute. I'm going to play an interview that, in fact, has over a million hits on YouTube. Um, it's during when he was injured in June 2013. So we'll play this clip and then we'll just talk about it. Okay. This summer, or basically last month and a half, basketball's been taken away from you. What's that been like? Well, it's been, it's been challenging. Um, especially towards the, towards the end there, you know, during the playoffs, and you can't do anything. You can't move. You can't. There's nothing. You feel helpless. And during that stretch, it was very difficult. And then once the off season came, you know, you, you start the reality starts setting in of saying, okay, well, I can't train. Um, I'm really limited in what I can do therapy wise. So now you start looking at what the future is going to be. You know, post your NBA career, you know, things that you can focus on, things that you can acclimate yourself to. And you start looking at that as a challenge a little bit. What are some of those things that you've explored? It's still a moving target. You know, I think that's, you know, for me, it's, uh, you know, it's about finding something that you're equally as passionate about, mm-hmm. and that you can really uh, sit down and do on a daily basis. But, but finding that's the, you know, half the battle. So that seems to be one of the first times that, uh, Kobe started talking about his after career when he had nothing to do. I remember he said that in that interview that he was, uh, um, you know, sitting home watching the Miami Indiana game. And his kid was like, "I want to watch a cartoon." He's like, "Sure, we'll watch a cartoon." Um, what, what, when you sit down with a guy like Kobe, obviously you didn't know what was going to happen in the years ahead. And you, in fact, said on the Woj podcast just a couple of, uh, I think, a month ago, in the line from the Bronx Tale, "There's nothing worse in life than wasted potential." It seemed like. Kobe never wasted potential on the court, but then you had him talking about what that potential could be off the court as well. Compare you what you just said about LeBron to the Kobe experience you had covering him in LA. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 honestly, it's still I still think about Kobe a lot. Um, just wrote a story yesterday about his his widow Vanessa um, is, mm-hmm. is suing the LA County Sheriff's and Fire Department, and um, you know for four officers who, you know, recklessly took photos of the crash site and shared them with people who had no business seeing them. It, it's something that's all the time. And, it, you know, obviously Kobe didn't waste his potential. I mean, he got every ounce of it as a player. The, the I guess my point of saying that was there was seemed to be so much more runway for him in a mm-hmm. non-basketball life um, as a father, um, as a community leader, as um, someone who was very interested in the, you know, the, the, the method of storytelling through various forms, um, it, it's just tough, tough to think about what he could have been capable of. And, you know, the parallel I see between Ron and Kobe is neither one ever lived themselves in terms of uh, what room they would feel comfortable in. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, business-wise, um, entertainment-wise, and certainly basketball-wise. And you, know, you have to be supremely confident. Like, I am a very low-level basketball player, but I, I've tried to get the most of my playing. There was some good competition on those staff games in the Dome. That's right. We had some staff games in, like – Thankfully, you know, uh, Hershey's ice cream is down the street. Uh. <laughs> 
But like, I mean, how great was it though? Even for that, like I was, you know, playing pickup games against guys like Terrence Roberts. You know, six foot nine, incredible athlete, uh, yeah. high pedigree, one of the uh, celebrated New Jersey high school players, and, mm -hmm. and and through that, you know, you have to you have to show a lot of confidence, and and the only way to do that, basically, as you learn, is it's the work that gives you the confidence. Like, yeah, I belong on this court because I have spent so many hours playing pickup or working on my jump shot or, um, you know, uh, running space or whatever it may be. Um, and I think that that's the through line, really the, the, the biggest through line is the work ethic is tremendous out of both of them and the passion for the game. Uh, you know, I've, now covering the NBA for about 15 seasons and I have come across all sorts of guys, all sorts of personalities. And listen, if you're seven feet tall and you'd be able to make a living millions of dollars playing in the NBA and you do the right things to be a good teammate, but you don't love it. Like I, I can mm -hmm. still respect you. I think it's, it's the, the folks that don't necessarily love it and don't, take advantage of the opportunity they've been given. Like, yeah. uh, like I get like LeBron and Kobe were freaks in terms of like their love of basketball. And like, I consider myself a freak of basketball. So I can be, a, a, you know, have a kinship there. Uh, but I, you know, if you aren't, you're kind of selling yourself short unless you go all in on, on whatever you're in. And, and both those guys certainly had that. And, you know, LeBron, you can see, not necessarily like following Kobe's footsteps per se, but Kobe, I think, normalized the idea of mm -hmm. an NBA player also being a producer of content. Um, yeah. You know, so that, now, now when no one thinks twice about LeBron James's production company, but right. you know, when 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 Kobe was having a documentary filmed about his career while he was still playing and. And, and really taking creative control. You know, the Muse documentary that is great and it airs on, you can watch it on Showtime streaming. Nice. Um, and, and he worked with Gotham Chopra, who is a great documentary filmmaker uh, on that project. They did hundreds of interviews. I was interviewed for it. Phil Jackson, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, other journalists, players, coaches, all those. And Kobe saw the rough cut and said, no, nah, this isn't the right feel. Uh, mm -hmm. And so Kobe you know, uh, did away with all the other interviews and he wanted to be the singular voice wow. and singular you know, person that you saw telling his story. And they did all sorts of uh, recuts and, and Kobe sat down for more hours and hours and hours of interviews to get the, the parts that they would need to finish the documentary. And not everybody would do that. Not everybody would take the ownership of being right. uh, on a project like that. You know, they would say, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm a basketball player. You you just make those decisions. But um, it's a really compelling product. And uh, he was someone who you know did everything that I, I witnessed. Everything he did to, was to the nth degree. Yeah. So when you talk about production, of course, he won the Oscar for the short Dear Basketball. Um, when you watch this film, the short after his death, it's even more powerful. And here's one line that really sticks out with me I here. I can't love you obsessively for much longer. This season is all I have left to give. My heart can take the pounding. My mind can handle the grind. But my body knows it's time to say goodbye. And that's okay. 
I'm ready to let you go. I want you to know now, so we both can savor every moment we have left together. If we only knew just years after that we would be talking like that, I mean, it brings almost like tears to my eyes thinking yeah, about I'm, that. I'm, I'm a little yeah. Period. Yeah. yeah. So I believe, if I'm correct, you were on the plane with the Lakers coming back from Philly uh, when the news broke from Coach Vogel that Kobe had died in the helicopter. Um, and just in, in, this is a rabbi on the sidelines. I do put the faith into that aspect. And you wrote an article basically saying in ESPN.com that LeBron heard this and he said um, the only thing he could do was gather the team in prayer. What did that moment look like? What are the prayers said at that time? And did that come from a place of faith that LeBron has? Or he said, that's the only thing I could think of doing at that moment. If you are willing to take us through that moment. Sure. Yeah. Um, To be clear, I I was out on the plane. I I travel commercial and go where they go, but I was able to talk to, talk to several people who were on the plane, including LeBron. Um, It's interesting. I've covered, as I mentioned, all sorts of of players. Um, I have seen players uh, profess to be uh, followers of faith uh, and then maybe live their life in a way that wouldn't suggest that manner. Um, I've also seen uh, faith be like an anchor uh, for several players that that may need it um, to, you know, they may run astray, but it it gives them – you know, a baseline they can return to. And, um, you know, LeBron's not, you know, uh, a term I I, I use sometimes for, uh, like, he's not someone who's going to put it in in your face, right? Um, Uh You know, he's not quoting scripture. He's not, um, you know, like, the first thing when he wins a championship, he's not thanking his Lord and Savior. Uh, But, uh, obviously it, it's something that that matters to him and uh there is there's like there's a spirituality that exists within a team to make mm-hmm. it more than just fellow employees um nice. you know you, you share that space you share that time you consider it to be uh, a sacred bond between you and your teammates and and a lot of the teams I've been fortunate enough now to cover Four, four, well, four teams that have won the championship and eight teams that have made the NBA Finals. Nine teams that have made the NBA Finals. Um, there's there's something extra to it, and uh, you know I, I think when you talk about um, faith, I grew up Roman Catholic. I'm not non practicing, and and so I apologize if I'm a little shaky about this because I I don't even know where I totally fully stand on on the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there is um, there's a, a power to it uh, of recognizing that there's a lot going on that's bigger than ourselves, and yeah. um, and I think you know losing Kobe, uh, there was a recognition that one life is precious, um, mm-hmm. and we should certainly um, you know embrace the time we have, and in embracing that time, like you know treat treat people well you know to me that's a pretty much a universal message uh, amongst all religions that i i've come to know yeah actually seth greenberg a couple of weeks ago was talking about he said i have my locker room 
and that is my sanctuary. You have your sanctuary, and I love what you said, the sacred bond and this idea that we are. I mean, you keep mentioning, I was at the right time, at the right place, right? Somebody in the faith world would say, you know, it was providential. It was God's moment. I don't like to use that language, but, you know, things happen for a reason, and you try to find the blessing even when there are, when there are challenges as well. Um, somebody actually asked uh, Danny Corson, a Syracuse grad, did you write for the Daily Orange? I did. I wrote for the Daily Orange, um, but I because I worked for the basketball team, I couldn't cover the men's team. It would be a conflict of interest. So I did some like campus news type stuff for the DO. Uh, and then I actually, I don't even you know. You wouldn't want to be in the wrong end of those press conferences in the carry home. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's that yeah. Um, but, you know, it was, you know, th- that's that's a lesson, right? Like I had a vest. I, I could still never cover Syracuse basketball to this day because I'm, I'm so biased. It's, I'm wearing, I wore this because I'd be seeing Friday, six forty, everybody. San Diego State. Super <laughs> excited for it. And I was going through old pictures on my Facebook of the last time they played San Diego State. I go into that on the, on the, on the ship. Yeah. Yeah. On the exactly. ship. Um, so like, yeah, I, I, I couldn't have covered the basketball team, even if I wanted to, uh, it wouldn't have been right. Um, so I, I didn't do sports for the DL. Uh, there was a publication called the student voice, uh, that I, I wrote. It was kind of like a longer form, uh, type of story. It came out once a month. And then, uh, my best experience in journalism at, at Syracuse was writing for the post standard, which is oh, nice. this, 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 the city newspaper. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, again, I didn't cover the men's basketball team, the constant adventures, but I covered the women's basketball team and I covered sports and, um, you know, that it was just, it was like a, basically a internship as part of a, a class that I took my senior year at Syracuse. And yes. it, it was, I mean, I gave up most of my Friday nights, my senior year, which is, you know, I missed a lot of fun times going to cover high school football, but I, I, for the days of Paulus though, right? You're at CBA. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Wow. Um, and, but I got to, you know, really get that extra work experience and, and uh, also re- Back to that thing I talked about Coach Beheim before, that there's no off, really. It's not nine to five. Uh, That was a good lesson, too, that, like, yeah, you're going to work in sports. You're going to work nights, and you're going to work weekends. You're going to work holidays and because sports are there to entertain people when they're off. That's what you're working. Coach Beheim is going to join us after the season to talk about the work that he does with Coaches versus Cancer and the special needs community that I've been really affected with, uh, with him during my upbringing as well. Um, just a couple more questions. Let's go back to the faith thing because I came across Pastor Jerry Birch. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him in Cleveland. Um, and I, I, I don't know him, but I saw your email. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he said something interesting, sort of what you said, right? It's not in your face. He said, my job's not to go there and rah, rah, get ready, get them ready for a game. My job is to teach them and inspire them to learn, understand, and apply, uh, apply the word of God to their life. I remember at Syracuse, uh, I think it was doc, right? The psychologist that was there working with mental health. Um, this seems like also another way to access people. Um, I have a good friend, Mike Sweetney, who obviously was a lottery pick, Georgetown Hoya, but he suffered a lot of mental health issues and he didn't have that spiritual help that he said if he had nowadays, he might have been playing a couple more years and been up there with the names of LeBron, Kobe, and Dwayne Wade. Um, do you think mental health and the spiritual side sort of go hand in hand at all? Yeah, I, I do. Again, I think it's... Um... And, and whether, you know, however you want to term it, right? So, so Phil Jackson, uh-huh. I was fortunate enough to cover. And Phil Jackson grew up um, with a, you know, a strict Christian upbringing. Um, 
later in life, he explored all sorts of religions and he brought like kind of a hybrid approach to it, to his teams. They would say the Lord's prayer in the, the locker room before and after games. Uh, but also he would, you know, talk about Zen Buddhist uh, principles and also, you know, the Native American spirituality when it comes to being one with nature and the earth. And it, it to me, and, and so the, another part of his teaching, his coaching was mindfulness and staying in the moment. And nice. I, I think that again is something that when it comes to mental health, um, you know, if you are living in the moment, you're not worrying about whatever happened in the past or, or, or dwelling on whatever happened in the past or worrying about what's going to happen in the future. You, you just, you make, you make it a lot easier on yourself. All, all you have to recognize is that the task in front of you is literally, all you, have. you know, you have this task, you have this, this connection, you have this relationship, whatever it may be. And as long as you keep giving you, you know, your true self to, every moment that comes along there's you know there's going to always going to be stuff that out of your control that that you have to deal with but you'll, you'll give your chance yourself a better chance to deal with those things because you're giving your all to that moment versus worrying about what's in the, the past or the future so you ask lebron a question like that similarly being even kill um i think that's when it uh kind of changed from we've seen you in heated playoff series be sitting on the bench completely still completely calm eyes closed, collecting yourself. How have mental exercises like that helped you succeed in your career? Um, I think it's helped tremendously, Dave. I mean, to be able to be in a packed arena on the road with 20,000, 22,000 people, screaming fans, going crazy, um, the, the level of the pressure of the game, to be able to find a moment, two minutes or one minute or whatever, 30 seconds to be able to just to close my eyes and, and just kind of relax myself and calm myself, uh, take deep breaths, give myself an, an opportunity just to. Yeah, so you sort of named it right there, right? To live in that moment, to uh, find those moments. And it's interesting because, you know, when, when, you guys, when you guys won the championship this past year, my wife is also a rabbi, Rabbi Nicole Guzik, works with me. She gave a sermon about LeBron's speech at the end. And here you're saying that Phil Jackson goes to the religious spirituality and brings them to the locker room, which is a really neat intersection that I think people don't necessarily, you know, see every day. Um, so we're going to have closing comments, just a, a fun thing. Number we have a lot of Laker fans here at Sinai Temple in uh, West L.A. Uh, what's your prediction for the rest of the year coming out of the All-Star break with, with AD? I know following you on Twitter with the Dudley updates. He wants to be your cheerleader, doesn't want to get a surgery. What's going on in your world? Yeah, the Lakers have had a – a successful season so far. I mean, they're 27 and 13. They had the shortest off season of any team in NBA history, 71 days. And, uh, you know, LeBron has done everything he can to make sure that the standard of play doesn't fall off. He was 36 years old playing his 18th season. He's only missed one game all year. Um, compare him to any superstar. Uh, you know, even, you know, Dame Lillard's probably the closest. Dame's only missed two for Portland. But, you know, most superstars in today's NBA, there's baked in rest uh, and certainly someone of his age, but he is trying to maximize every moment he has with this team. And he recognizes that if you want to get to the mountaintop, which he's done four times in his career, like you can't cut corners along the way. They have their work cut out for them, though. Like, let's assume health for Anthony Davis, which, you know, hopefully everything will be OK with that 
right leg of his. Uh, he's dealing with a calf strain and and um, some tendinosis. He'll come back with 20 or so games left the regular season, have enough time to get into rhythm, have enough time to find some camaraderie, which whatever new pieces they bring in, and they're going to hit the uh, buyout market pretty hard over the next 10 days or so. Uh, I doubt they trade anybody at trade deadline because they only have so many pieces that, and they're going to need those pieces next year and moving forward. Um, but, you know, they'll, they'll get a rhythm and then they're going to be able to play. Um, and they'll be one of the favorites, my opinion. Um, and, you know, my, I'm paid more to report than to offer my opinion, but since we're doing this, I can offer the opinion. Uh, the Nets, you're in a, the you're Nets in a Senate guy here. You're all good. Yeah, right. The Nets are the far, far away. The best team. Uh, I, I think the Nets, everyone will realize it soon enough, especially when Kevin Durant comes back from this hamstring uh, pain that's kept them out. But I, I think the Nets are going to roll the championship. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, no matter what the Lakers do, they they can maximize what this team is, is capable of. Um, and, and perhaps that's getting to the NBA Finals again. I don't think this team is capable of beating Kevin Durant, James Harden, two former MVPs in their prime, and Kyrie Irving, the best ball handler in NBA history, can create a shot. I, I just don't see it. Wow, you heard it right here on Rabbi on the Sidelines, <laughs> right in Los Angeles, Syracuse alum Dave McMenamin. Dave, it is a pleasure to uh, both hear your voice and speak with you personally again. I know our community looks forward to seeing you back on the court at Staples Center where we can gather one day as well. We'll make sure we put our prayers out there for uh, for um, AD and Dudley on our prayer list as well to make sure that the Lakers can overcome those challenges of the New Jersey Nets. Um, also, of course, go Lakers, but for us uh, from the tundra of central New York, also go Orange uh, as they battle their way into the NCAA tournament. Dave, it's so great to see you, and we look forward to following you ESPN Laker analyst, ESPN.com journalist, Dave McMenamin. Follow him on Twitter. Follow him on ESPN.com. And most importantly, have a wonderful day. Next week on Rabbi on the Sidelines, Len Elmore, All-American, University of Maryland, ESPN, CBS broadcaster, Harvard-trained lawyer, and now professor at Columbia University Sports Management. Have a wonderful day live from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. It's Rabbi on the Sidelines. <laughs>